listening to the sermon podcast of Brockport First Baptist. We are a progressive American Baptist congregation located about 20 minutes outside of Rochester, New York. To learn more about our church and support our ministries, please visit BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Our scripture today is Mark 11, verses 12 to 25. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see whether perhaps he would find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. He said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Then they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling and those who were buying in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves, and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. He was teaching and saying, It is not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And when the chief priests and the scribes heard it, they kept looking for a way to kill him, for they were afraid of him because the whole crowd was spellbound by his teaching. And when evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. In the morning as they passed by, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. Then Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly, I tell you, if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and if you do not doubt in your heart but believe that what you say will come to pass, it will be done for you. So I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. Whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespass. The word of the God for the people of God. Thanks, thanks Lori, for that reading. And congrats, by the way. It's awesome. <clears throat> you know, it's getting a little, uh, a little old having to rewrite my sermons every time there's a national trauma. This has happened too much recently. Um, you know, you spend, you spend all week crafting a sermon you know, studying the text, looking at commentaries, writing, a, writing what you think is or hope is going to be a good message. And then Friday rolls around, and it's like the Supreme Court did what? You know, there goes my Saturday. I should just, like, not make any plans anymore. So we're looking at this passage today. Uh, it's a pretty famous story where Jesus curses a fig tree and cleanses the temple. Um, this is a story that I think can be a little confusing for some of us, uh, especially for those of us who prefer the cute cuddly Jesus. You know the one I'm talking about. The, the soft Jesus who like snuggles lambs and, uh, you know, hangs out with kids and stuff like that. That, that. that Jesus. That's the Jesus that a lot of us like. We don't know what to make of the Jesus who flips tables and destroys public property. We don't know how exactly to handle that Jesus. Jesus kills a tree in this passage. That doesn't seem very Christ-like, right? Jesus goes up to a fig tree. He's looking for fruit. But there's no fruit on the tree because it's not the season for figs. So he curses the fig tree and it never bears fruit again. That seems like an overreaction, you know, like just, just a bit. 
Maybe Jesus was, was hangry, right? Like, maybe, maybe, maybe it's like one of those, remember those Snickers commercials from like 10 years ago? You're not you when you're hungry. You know, Joe Pesci is going off at someone, and his friend's like, here, man, eat a Snickers, and he turns into like a teenage girl or something. Like, it's great. It's great. Maybe Jesus just needs a Snickers. But no, there actually is a reason for Jesus cursing the fig tree. He's not just going around, you know, willy-nilly cursing trees. Um, see what's going on here, though. In order to see this, we've got to zoom out a little bit and talk about the structure of this passage. Because we've got another sandwich on our hands. Woohoo! Yay! Um, who, remembers, who remembers the sandwiches we find in Mark? We, we've talked about this a bit. Yay! Oh, you get this. Is, it's sticking. So exciting. Um, as you go through the book of Mark, you want to keep an eye open for this structure in the storytelling. Mark likes to do this thing where he'll take one story, split it in half, and cram another story right in the middle to show some kind of relationship, like a sandwich. And that's what we get here. Our passage begins with Jesus cursing a fig tree. That's the top part of the sandwich. May no one ever eat fruit from you again. Then we get a second story where Jesus, he goes into the temple and causes a scene. He's flipping tables, all that kind of stuff. Then we get the, the bottom part of the sandwich, kind of part two of the first story. They come out of the temple, and the disciples find, they discover, that the fig tree has withered. There is a connection here between the temple and the fig tree. And I'm going to give it to you. We're going to spell it out, make it super simple. You ready? Fig trees were a symbol of the temple. That's the connective tissue here. A fig tree is a national symbol for God's people, but especially for the temple. In Jerusalem, you would find fig trees all over the place. They were ubiquitous. It's like maple trees here. They're, like, they're everywhere. And so the fig tree became a symbol for the temple. When times were good, when the people were thriving, when justice was being there was a good king on the throne, and worship was going on like it's supposed to in the temple, then the fig tree was full. We find this imagery all over the Old Testament. Um, there's a verse, uh, this is from Deuteronomy. The Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey. Or this one from Micah. In the days to come, the mountain of the Lord's temple shall be established as the highest of the mountains. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. That sounds familiar. But they shall all sit under their own vines and under their own fig trees. When times are good, when God's people are living as they're supposed to, the fig tree is full. But when times are bad, when the leaders are corrupt and deny justice to the poor... When uh, the people turn to idols and the worship of the temple is corrupted, then the fig tree is bare and God comes to chop the fig tree down. The most uh, famous example of this comes from the prophet Jeremiah. About 600 years before Jesus, there was this prophet named Jeremiah. He predicted the destruction of the temple the first time before it was cool, um, way back when the Babylonians destroyed the temple. This is what Jeremiah wrote. <clears throat> From the least to the greatest, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. From prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. 
Therefore they shall fall among those who fall. At the time when I punish them, they shall be overthrown, says the Lord. I will surely gather them, says the Lord. There are no grapes on the vine, nor figs on the fig tree. Even the leaves are withered, and what I gave them has passed away. The fig tree is a symbol for the temple. Jesus heads into the temple, and on his way he curses a fig tree, which then withers and dies. Jesus kills a fig tree at the base of the temple. This would be the equivalent of like slaughtering a bald eagle on the steps of the Capitol building. Right? Or burning a flag in front of the Supreme Court. That is the level of the symbolism. That is how provocative, dramatic, offensive Jesus' action is in this passage. There's no fruit on the fig tree. Something has gone terribly wrong in the temple. So let's talk about that. I want to read this part of our passage uh, one more time. It's the midpoint, the, the meat of the sandwich. Mark 11, beginning in verse 15. It'll be on the screen. They came to Jerusalem. Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling and those who were buying in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. He was teaching and saying, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. What is going on here? People are buying and selling in the temple. Jesus is causing a scene. What is happening? To orient us. Uh, this is a picture of the temple. So it's, it's an artist's recreation. But this is, this is like a good estimate of what the temple in Jerusalem would have looked like around the time of Jesus. This structure in the middle is the actual temple. Like that, that structure right in there with a the big, big fence around it. But then you're going to notice outside of the temple, there is this huge courtyard area that's also part of this structure. That was called the temple court, or the court of Gentiles. Gentiles as in non-Jews. Us, right? The court of Gentiles is where this is going down. See, to actually go up to the temple and offer a sacrifice, you had to be Jewish. You had to keep the law, and you had to know what you're doing. You don't want to pollute the temple. But from the very beginning, the vision for the temple is that it would be a house of prayer for all the nations. Which means that everyone, regardless of where you came from, whether you were Jewish or not, what religion you practiced, everyone could come to the temple and draw close to God. So this court of Gentiles is like built in to the design. It's an incredibly inclusive idea today, let alone 2,000 plus years ago, to have a space where everyone can draw near to God and worship. That was the design. But by the time of Jesus, the temple had evolved, we'll say, into something else. It was the religious center of God's people, but it was also the cultural center, the political center, and the economic center. The, te the temple courtyard, this court of Gentiles, would have had the vibe more of a marketplace around the time of Jesus. It would have been busy. It's where business was done. It's where deals were made. And there were a handful of incredibly wealthy families that were making bank off the business in the temple. 
Everything was controlled by the priestly class, the Sanhedrin. Same people who are going to arrest Jesus in a few days and hand him over to the Romans to be crucified. A handful of priestly families appointed by King Herod, by the way, are kind of orchestrating all this and getting rich off the business happening in the court of Gentiles. And there were two big businesses, two big money-making schemes that were making the priestly families boku bucks. First was the sale of sacrificial animals, and the second was the exchange of temple currency, money-changing. You guys remember last summer when we did our series on Leviticus? Wasn't that fun? It's about the whole summer in Leviticus. We brought a goat into the sanctuary. We didn't sacrifice it. We didn't sacrifice it. It did poop uh, right, right in the middle of the sanctuary. It was great. Um, that was good times. That was good times. Um, in that series, though, we talked about how the temple was basically a nonstop barbecue. Right? Like the, the primary thing that happened in the temple was animal sacrifice, and a lot of those animals were eaten. The animals we brought in, slaughtered, cooked, and eaten. It was a party. It was a giant, nonstop potluck. And people came from all over the world to worship the temple. You had Jews scattered everywhere at this point. Uh, Rome, North Africa, parts of Asia, all coming to offer sacrifices. But it's not really feasible to bring an animal that far, right? Like, I've never traveled with livestock, personally, um, but I have done a five-hour car ride with a four-year-old. I don't recommend it. <laughs> I imagine it'd be a, a, step, a step worse than that. Um, you're not bringing a sacrificial animal all the way from North Africa to Jerusalem. That's just not going to happen. Instead, you bought your animal there. You would purchase your sacrificial animal in the temple court. Which means that the court of Gentiles, the place where outsiders, foreigners, are supposed to be able to gather together to pray and worship God, would have been filled with livestock. And that livestock would have been priced way over market value, by the way. You're paying easily two, three times for an animal in the temple court what you would pay at like a normal marketplace. So the priestly families are making bank off of that. They're also making bank from money changing. So you can't have idols in the temple, right? That's a big no-no. No idols in the temple, no representations, no images, no statues of any kind. But what's printed on the front of this quarter? Well, in God we trust, but what, what else, what's the big thing on the front of the quarter? George Washington. George Washington, yeah. Hi, George. A face, right? There's a big face on our coins. By their standards, that is an idol. That's a graven image. And there's no idols allowed in the temple. So how are you supposed to buy a sacrificial animal if you can't bring your dirty, idolatrous money into the temple? Easy. They had temple currency. The priestly families minted their own coins free of any idolatrous imagery, and they set up booths in the temple courts where you could convert your dirty, idolatrous money into holy money. How convenient. Of course, there's a fee, and those conversion rates are going to be astronomical. It was a racket, basically. You got hit on both ends. You got hit on the front end with the money changing, converting your temple to temple currency, and then you got hit on the back end when you'd actually buy an animal to sacrifice. All this in the place where Gentiles are supposed to gather to worship God. Are we seeing why Jesus is so angry? Are we following this? 
Jesus flips the tables of the money changers and the people selling doves. That part's important. Uh, and it's actually another Leviticus reference. There were three types of animals, generally, that you could offer for a sacrifice, according to Leviticus. You could bring a bull, um, you could bring a lamb or a goat, or you could bring a bird, usually a dove or a pigeon. Jesus flips over the, the chairs, the tables of the people selling doves. Thinking back to our Leviticus series, if you can remember, or if you want to guess... <clears throat> What's the reason for this tier of animals? Why are there different kind of animals that you can offer? Money. Yeah, people. Well, how rich people were. <laughs> exactly. How rich people were. Money. What could you afford? It was the cost. It was about what the worshiper could afford. If you were rich, you brought a bull because bulls were expensive. If you were middle class, you brought a goat or a lamb. And if you're poor, you still get to participate in the happenings of the temple. You just have to bring a bird. Just about anybody back then could get their hands on a bird. It's about economic inclusion. It was a way to erase some of the distance between the classes. Because the temple is supposed to be a prayer for who? Everybody. All people. That includes foreigners and the poor. Jesus flips the tables of the money changers and the people selling pigeons to the poor because who's getting screwed over the most in a system like this? The poor. Exactly. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Do we see why Jesus curses a fig tree at the foot of the temple? Do we see why he's flipping tables? We get in this connection. The temple is corrupt. It's profiting off the backs of the poor. It's making a handful of aristocratic families filthy rich. There is no fruit on the tree, which means that this temple is coming down. And 40 years after the time of Jesus, it did come down. The Romans destroyed the temple in 70 CE. It was never rebuilt. You don't have to be a prophet to see this coming, by the way. You don't have to be Messiah or Son of God, although I'm sure that helps. When you have a system that's making the rich richer and exploiting the poor, the whole thing is going to collapse. That's not sustainable. You can't maintain that in the long term. Which is where this story hits uncomfortably close to home. Now originally, before I rewrote the sermon... I was going to talk about economics. That's where we were going to go after this. This was going to be a sermon about kind of economics. I was going to talk about our economic system, how the ways that we exploit the poor, how the cracks are starting to show. Um, that's what I wanted to cover today. Most pastors, you know, they want to preach on topics like, like prayer and forgiveness. But, but with me, you get economics. <laughs> you know, I get, Jesus starts talking about the economy. I get all giddy. Um, <clears throat> I even listened to a fantastic interview last week uh, with an economist brilliant interview. They're talking about how since the 1980s, we've been exporting the cost of our consumption to the poor. Uh, they talk about how we've been exporting jobs, manufacturing jobs overseas, deregulating everything in order to take advantage of cheap labor and even cheaper materials overseas. When you buy a shirt for 10 bucks at Walmart, there's a reason that shirt costs 10 bucks. They're using cotton produced by slave labor in China. 
They're using uh, folks working in sweatshops to stitch it together in places like Pakistan, Vietnam. Then that stuff gets sold to Walmart dirt cheap because they've eliminated all the competition. They put all the mom and pops out of business. And then we get really cheap stuff because the cost for that, the real cost, is borne out by the poor, the people out of work, the people in the sweatshops, the mom and pops who had to close their stores. Then you get a global pandemic and a ground war in Europe, and all of a sudden the cracks start to show. All of a sudden these supply chains break down and we're paying more and more and more for our stuff because all of a sudden we have to bear the cost of this stuff. That's what I wanted to talk about today. But then we had Friday's Supreme Court ruling. On Friday, the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. Um, probably saw that news. If not, that was really confusing. <laughs> Fair time. Um, people are calling this a victory for the pro-life movement. I have a lot of uh, pro-life friends who are uh, really excited about this. Honestly, though, I don't see anything pro-life about it. With Roe gone, you're only getting rid of safe abortions for poor people. That's what you're getting rid of. Um, wealthy people will still have access to abortion, even in states where abortion is illegal, because if you have the means, if you have the ability to take off work for a few days and travel across state lines, you're going to have access to safe, legal abortions. But if you are poor, if you're a single mom with two jobs who can't afford to take a few days off work and drive up to New York, you're going to end up dying in a back alley. Those are the people, the price of this, the cost of this is going to fall on. The young, the poor, disproportionately poor women of color. Those are the people who are going to be criminalized. Those are the ones who are going to have to choose between dying from an ectopic pregnancy, carrying their rapist child to term, or breaking the law. The poor people. The cost will fall on the poor. And I know some state laws make exception for things like rape and the life of the mother, some, not all, states. But again, the burden of proof on that is super high, and it's a burden that falls on the poor. No wealthy woman is going to have to prove she was raped, most likely. Falls to the poor. That's not a sustainable system. The bottom is not going to hold on that. The fig tree is coming down. Jesus took a look at the corrupt system of his day, a system, by the way, that was dressed up in all sorts of religious language and imagery, justification, and he said, this whole thing is coming down. The foundation of this tree is rotten. There is no fruit. I had so many folks reach out to me this weekend, calling me, messaging me, asking what he doesn't just leave us hanging. Jesus acts in this passage, and his actions point in some pretty clear, albeit provocative, directions. Maybe it's time to flip some tables. Maybe it's time for some dramatic, prophetic action. If you're upset, if you're angry, that is 100% legitimate. That is a legitimate response. If you are worried about what rights they're going to come for next, channel that fear into action. Jesus flipped the tables and cursed a tree. Maybe it's time for you to march and call your congressman. <laughs> 
If you're worried about the Supreme Court coming for same-sex marriage next, march with us in the Pride Parade on July 16th. That's why we're doing it, and the need feels a lot more pressing now. Jesus sets an example, and he gives us direction. After Jesus curses the fig tree and flips over the tables, we get this little aside from Jesus. It's almost like a postscript. kind of threw me off when I first read this passage. Um, verse 22. Have faith in God. Truly I tell you, if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and if you do not doubt in your heart, but believe that what you say will come to pass, it will be done for you. So I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. Whenever you stand praying, forgive. Give anything against anyone, so that your Father in heaven may also forgive you. When I was working on this sermon the first time, before I rewrote it, I almost cut this whole part out, because I didn't know what to make of it. It seems tacked on. Right? Jesus cursed a tree. Made a scene in the temple. Now he's talking about prayer? Like, what? what? But the more I read this, I began to see the brilliance of what Jesus is doing here. He's giving us an alternative. Amen. He's laying out a blueprint. If the temple isn't going to be a house of prayer for all people, if that system is corrupt and broken, here's what you do. Here's how you pray. The first step is believe in God. Put your trust, put your faith in God. Don't put your trust in a temple or a church. Don't trust some broken economic system that exploits the poor and makes the rich richer. Don't trust the Supreme Court. Put your trust in God. God is the one who moves mountains. God is the one who established creation on a foundation of justice. God is the one who designed the systems of our world so that they crumble and fall apart when they become corrupt. Put your trust in God, not the systems of this world. That's the first step. Step two is prayer, but it's prayer connected with action. If you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea... And if you do not doubt in your heart but believe that what you say will come to pass, it will be done for you. I have heard a million sermons on this line that completely miss the point. Sermons about faith that can move mountains. Sermons about how if we, if we trust God enough and have enough faith, God's going to give us what we want. And it's really easy to read this line like that. That's like the plain reading. But I think it would have hit a bit differently for the disciples who are with Jesus on the scene. Jesus says this as they're leaving the temple, as they're leaving Jerusalem. The temple, which sits on a huge mountain. Here's a picture of roughly what they would have been looking at. This is, this is in Jerusalem, more modern, obviously. Up there at the top is kind of what's left of the old temple walls. It's a giant mountain, right? The temple sits on a mountain. If you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will come to pass. Call me crazy, but when Jesus says this mountain, I think he means this mountain. <laughs> the temple and the broken, corrupt system it represents. If you put your trust in God and pray for the end of this system, the mountain is going to fall. 
It might take 40 years. But that mountain's coming down. Put your faith into action. Go to protests. March in those parades. Write your senators. This applies even if you're pro-life. Uh, even if you're happy about Friday's decision, now is the time to start advocating for greater access to health care, child care, uh, strengthening the social safety net, the kind of stuff that tackles the root causes of abortion, which are economics. Now is the time to channel that energy into action, wherever you fall on this. And pray. Pray for God to establish justice. Pray for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Pray for God to bring life out of death. That's what God does best. Couple those prayers with action to overturn unjust systems and watch as mountains fall into the sea. So one last point, step three. This is the hard one. This is the one we're not going to like. Jesus closes us out by teaching his disciples to forgive. Whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you. Whenever you stand praying. Whenever you lift your voice in prayer for the end of whatever mountain is crushing you, our next words have to be words of forgiveness. And that's hard. But it's important. It's hard to forgive the people who have wronged us, especially when our first instinct is to attack. <coughs> Since Friday's ruling, um, I've seen a number of uh, so-called activists who've been posting the home addresses of Supreme Court justices online. Usually it looks like a little wink and a nod be ashamed if something happened to these folks. Don't even go there. Don't do it. It's not an option for us. Jesus takes violence off the table. That is not the way. Don't share the address of a Supreme Court justice on the internet. Are you insane? After January 6th, at the same time when that same Supreme Court seems intent on putting guns in the hands of as many people as possible, the systems of our world are violent enough. They don't need our help. We don't have to play that game. When those in power are so violent, that violence returns on them. It's built into the system. Violence begets violence. We don't have to help. Our job is to forgive. Forgive your enemies. Forgive those who wrong you. Forgive the people in power who strike fear into your hearts. That is the way of Jesus. If you study history, you know that when unjust systems finally do collapse, when mountains fall into the sea, violence usually follows. Look at any revolution. It's always bloody. People take up arms. They attack each other. They start wars, storm government buildings. The only way to avoid that is to start practicing radical forgiveness. As Christians, we need to be modeling forgiveness, teaching forgiveness, and practicing forgiveness. We need to get really good at forgiving people, and you only get good through practice. I believe that we're living like Jesus in a system that is ultimately unsustainable in so many ways. A system that is starting to fall apart to show the cracks because it exploits the poor, 
empowers the rich, and flies in the face of God's justice. And God is going to tear that fig tree down. If you want to weather the storm, inspire hope and be ready for whatever comes next, you've got to embody the new life Jesus is pointing to. And we do that by trusting God, coupling prayer with action, and practicing radical forgiveness. Let's pray. God, we are living in a time of upheaval. A time when the rights so many of us have taken for granted are being threatened and stripped away. So God, help us to trust you. Help us to come to you in prayer with whatever fear or anger is on our hearts. Help us to turn that fear into positive action for change. From dramatic, symbolic statements like flipping tables and cursing trees to more concrete, on-the-ground work for change. God, help us to partner with you as you build a better world. And may we lead the way with forgiveness. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with us on Facebook at Brockport First Baptist, on Twitter at Brockport FB, and on our website, BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Our theme music was composed by Scott Holmes. This has been a production of Brockport First Baptist.